Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. But, but in parentheses, we hope that you do. And let me just say on that. On we're that in brackets note, now. In because the, in the parentheses. <laughs> no, no, no. This is an asterisk oh, that goes down to a footnote. a footnote. Yeah, this is a footnote. It's a full-on footnote. There have been some listeners shooting emails to us oh, with yes. questions, comments, have been reading along. Love that. Love that. Yes. That gets us so excited. We were actually just We've actually about, carved like, out time today yeah. to sit down and respond to, to some. To respond to some, play yes. around with them. So... We're Thank very you, listeners, excited. for joining. And keep doing it. Share yeah. it with people. Yes. Anybody. Yeah. All over. So, footnote ended back to top of page. End of bracket. Period. Period. Today, on the episode, we're going to uh, do something a little bit special. Well, this special is something episode. we've been talking about for the past several months. I don't even remember when we first got this manuscript. Like, I think it was like September, October. October yeah. yeah, before the book it was, was published. Yeah, it was before the book. Yeah, before the book was published, we had been hearing chatter around polyvagal theory being dead. Mm. And dun, as dun, I dun. looked for it in preparation for this episode, could not find that original post, which is interesting. Yeah. The, there was an iconic, I think, I think it's it a was, Facebook post, actually, which well, may was, not be searchable. If, I'm, if, I, if my working memory is correct and my recall is good, I believe it was a medium. It was like medium.com. Okay. Wasn't it an, an op-ed? It was. Um, it was an op-ed regardless of where it was. Yeah. But I couldn't find it. Interesting. Searching polyvagal theory is dead brings up no, like, it brings up related articles. Yeah. But no original posts. Which actually I feel better about. I do. That was yeah. a very interesting post. Yeah. Um, but if you remember back to that time, because I've talked to many consultees about their fear around the emerging criticisms of polyvagal theory that it was quote unquote dead, which means that true the post anyway, that polyvagal theory lost its empirical validity, mm-hmm. that we should abandon it as a explanation or theory of autonomic state regulation. Mm. Um, and they had some, criticisms of what they ascribed to Porges, the originator of polyvagal theory, as um, statements that had been empirically disproven. And so we're going to jump headfirst into this uh, to answer um, that polyvagal theory is not dead. Yeah. And there's been a lot of conversation, which is why I wanted, one, I wanted to do this podcast because I think our readers and listeners will be, will be supported by it. Yeah. They're but, engaging with polyvagal theory. Yeah, all yeah. the time. Yep. So that's number one. But number two, I think this also is an incredible vignette of the process of research and what can really happen when we start throwing around power, money, clickbait, mm-hmm. like this kind of, you know, if it if it bleeds, it reads, you know, yeah. this yeah. idea of what I would note as the capitalistic fantasy mm-hmm. of research validity. Yeah. So just even that statement, the capitalistic fantasy of research validity. Yeah. As like coming in and 
um, destroying the fidelity of the research. Yes. Field. Not yes. as just a all or nothing, but as what we've talked about many times and even back to some of the, the earlier episodes of the season, like the story of research, yes. the story that science is telling us. We're in the midst of a very fraught narrative mm. in reviewing this mm-hmm. article. Like yeah. it's still an unresolved tension in the plot and much debate around which character will prevail, <laughs> quote unquote. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I was even thinking, you know, when we talked about this, this text originally, and we were getting some of those questions about polyvagal theory, um, that just noticing the differences of like what some of these op-ed pieces were kind of like quickly shoving out mm-hmm. into the public sphere. And then Stephen Porges's posture was to craft Wait. in a geniusly articulated chapter in his book yeah. that synthesized kind of the conceptions, misconceptions, and then articulated that in a way that was like constructive. Yeah. Not even destructive to the no. to the counter argument. Dealt very little. He with, even sharpened their arguments. Yeah, and said if you want to actually more accurately criticize the theory, yeah. you would focus in on this, which is the point of yes. good theory. Yeah love that posture a totally different posture and i think again listeners having that like ability to engage in research in that way because that feels so much more constructive integrative yeah yeah let's and we talked about this in the in uh an episode we recorded previously of like let's actually sharpen Mm -hmm. some of our critiques we need to think more creatively yeah (laughs) so that we're actually getting to deeper levels of knowing rather than just like axing things with blunt yeah blunt force right just smashing things all together yeah Yeah. so i want to give a little bit of a timeline of the publishing and then criticism of pvt that i think can foreshadow some of our conversation so the initial paper that was given by porges uh introducing the idea of polyvagal theory as a uh neuro or a uh, human evolutionary biology uh, conceptualization of autonomic specialization in mammals. We'll talk a lot more about what all those words mean as we get deeper into the episode. But in that address, that was where PVT was first unveiled. And he'd been working a lot with um, what's something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia in uh, neonates and uh, fetal uh, developmental periods, and then into predicting resilience or distress in premature infants. Mm-hmm. Like what do we know that can help us understand why some infants, even in high-risk premature birth situations, seem to have more resilience than others. Well, a lot of of information was swirling around about the heart being a good predictor of that and getting blood to developing organs and et cetera. So that's where he kind of was was focused on Mm -hmm. what do we know from a cardiology standpoint uh, that can help us see some of this. So that paper went out. Then he published a more formal articulation in 95. And then that being in the center of the decade of the brain, lots of buzz emerged around the neurobiology of the polyvagal theory. Mm-hmm. So then um, in the early 2000s, um, a couple of researchers uh, started a counter narrative, um, sort of in the beginning, I would say, trying to be as you know uh, compassionate towards the other researcher as I can, trying to do what good theory does, which is challenge itself. So trying to see, is there any real tenacity to the uh, 
kind of fundamental pillars of the polyvagal theory. Yeah. But what that started quickly became a firestorm of publishing against mm -hmm. the polyvagal theory with what Porges would say are straw man arguments and equiv or, uh, equivalence fallacies and mm -hmm. all of these different things that aren't actually in the original polyvagal theory, but are being touted and, and shared as a complete dismantling yeah. of the theory. Empirically based, like, invalidation yep. of which then should trigger us to get rid of it altogether, mm -hmm. drop it from conversation. Mm -hmm. Which is what so much of, I, I remember the quote of that op-ed mm -hmm. was at the end of the article, it was like, should, polyvagal theory has nothing to offer us. Yes, it was as vividly said as that. Uh, does, yeah, the, the article I remember provocatively started with, is there anything salvageable from the carcass of polyvagal theory? Mm. And at the end of it, they said, there is nothing for us and we should stop teaching it to students. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Which I think like, um, you know, I like how you're being generous to the researchers because it almost seems like at the start, they come from a very, and we'll get it more into like the critiques of it, but they're, it, like some of their early articles in 2007, 2009, uh, feel very much in line with like adding an evolutionary perspective that's a nuancing mm -hmm. of, you know, what, um, what Porges was studying of the uh, cardio inhib inhibitory experiences and these like breaking of the heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. um, the vagal in, paradox. Yeah, and, in, mm -hmm. in vertebrates. Uh, whereas like um, Porges was thinking more about the mammalian specialization. They were adding a complexification to mm -hmm. uh, vertebrates, um, but um, that kind of got on this interesting train of like, they got some funding, they got some, a group of researchers then kind of came together and then it started to feel more like, yeah, and... yeah, more money, more grants. And then it came into this full charge, like attack on PBT. One of which interestingly was the same grant that Porges was awarded, which led up to the unveiling of the polyvagal theory, mm. which is very interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's very curious. Yeah. <laughs> but this, I think, shows a lot of the the politics of uh, research. And that's why the second piece of me kind of wanted to, to do this review from our mm -hmm. perspective. Um, yeah. I will say, just disclosing my predispositions, um, I was not in any way moved by any of the publishing around polyvagal theory and its shortcomings. Um, I, I noted in myself a hesitancy as I saw the article publishing number rise uh, mm -hmm. on some specific uh, what I would say like supplanted tenets of polyvagal theory that weren't actually there but that were getting a lot of attention in the literature. Mm -hmm. So I was um, going to lead that into saying sometimes when researchers are criticized they're invited by a publisher to uh, write a comment back mm -hmm. to the um, the criticism. And that started some initial back and forth between uh, these critical authors and Porges and other uh, proponents of the polyvagal theory. But all the while, Porges was not doing very much serious work on responding to these criticisms until the idea for this book came out, Polyvagal yeah. Safety. 
and that was published in 2021. So this is the uh, this is chapter two of that book, but it was also an article that uh, or a manuscript that we were given uh, by a friend. If you are listening to this, you know who you are. Uh, gave it to us before it was finished in the editorial phase. Um, and in that, we were able to kind of sit with Porges's original thought around how to conceptualize a response to these critiques. Um, if you actually have the book or have seen this manuscript, there is a copy of it kind of floating around the web now. Um, you'll see a very similar form in it to the um, memory reconsolidation uh, misunderstood and mm. understood yeah. from Ecker. Um, very similar form, and I think this is good scholarship. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's our perspective is that if we're going to talk about a criticism to a theory, it should not be through reactivity and this place of kind of defensiveness, yeah. but in like let's let's actually critique it together, mm -hmm. even if it was mine originally, and see what comes out on the other side. And so here's what I originally said, and then listed on the other column is what the critics say and mm -hmm. here's what we're gonna shake out on the other side of it yeah yeah which i think like you know therapists like counseling grad school 101 like how do we engage in research is like uh, it had that like quality of understanding like if you're reading an article that is just like over definitive mm -hmm. like be very skeptical yes but i do love that the the nuance of some of these articles that were reviewing especially the memory reconsolidation understood misunderstood where they go with the theory uh posture so they give the they present the theory they uh, present the the critiques they talk about the potential misconceptions between the theory and the critiques and then they offer both a resolution of the theory and a future direction for you know if you were going to critique this more yeah, we do need to study these things. Yes, absolutely. And an openness to um, the further, like, um, I think Porges talks about, like, the further development of the theory. Like, yes. It's necessary to develop it further. Right, uh, right. So in dealing with this, there have been others that um, have also responded to some of these criticisms. So I encourage you to just go on your own, own hunt to find out different things. But in the way we're going to deal with it, um, I would like to intro with an introduction of what Porges intended the theory to be. Mm -hmm. And then from there, talk about some of the basic concepts articulated even still today by polyvagal theory. And from there, some of the misconceptions and how Porges responds as well as how we make sense of it. Mm -hmm. I want this to less so be about carrying the weight of having to defend the theory because Porges already did that. Yeah. And so if you're wanting to hear a more detailed response his book is available for purchase. Um, we'll probably have links to it in the show notes somewhere. It's called Polyvagal Safety, Attachment, Communication, and Self-Regulation. It's a 2021 text from the Norton series on interpersonal neurobiology. So Norton's still finding some good uh, readership. Oh, in yeah. It. Yeah, some really amazing stuff. So what I'd like our time to be is more so perhaps even making space for the experience of this looming criticism era that we're mm -hmm. in um, around this and what it felt like there, but then also how we're making sense of some of these distinctions, mm -hmm. uh, just to encourage the listeners to also try that on in themselves and think through their own making sense of the mm -hmm. polyvagal theory and what the mm -hmm. epoch of science that we're in now kind of makes of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know how you, I mean, you mentioned it briefly early on, but how you experienced um, in totality the critiques of polyvagal theory. Um, but I, I think we both shared some just like kind of overwhelming disappointment around just the posture of the critiques. Yes. Um, yeah, I remember getting that initial uh, email <laughs> sent to me. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I remember there was kind of like a, a sigh of, yeah, just like, I don't know what it felt like to you. To me, disappointment isn't quite right. Mm. Almost like, um, I guess frustration, but it had more like resolve to it. Like, mm. ugh. yeah, yeah, I guess disappointment in that way, but yeah, a collective sigh in the Institute about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of that has to do with, um, it, tracking Porges's thoughts as like a neuroevolutionary and biobehavioral evolution of mm -hmm. these natural systems. The critiques then um, uh, sort of didn't feel like they even paid attention to. Yeah, what, they had left the yeah. conversation. Yeah, what what Porges would talk about, like accretion based reorganization of biological systems, mm -hmm. um, and. Like when when reading those critiques, it's like, well, yeah, like, and and we'll get into some of those critiques, but just I feel it kind of important to think of like when Porges is talking about uh, the vagal break, this, the development of a social social engagement system, the mitigating threat through sociality, mm -hmm. um, the idea of neuroception, um, all of that feels very like connected in an organization of evolutionary processes mm -hmm. we've come to develop these in like utilizing old hardware yeah. but like repurposing it with like new software that is then reciprocally conditioning to change the hardware yeah um and and that just feels like almost too robust yeah to like and that's where i i feel that just handling that kind of more myopically when we're talking about human evolutionary biology, which is itself a theory, mm -hmm. we have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Like this entire world we're talking inside of, which feels almost not, like inarguable, yeah. is itself a theory. Mm -hmm. We don't know. We're right. just making sense of breadcrumbs here in the present as best yeah. we can. It's a story just like any other. We may find something later on that tells us that, you know what, in fact, humans are only 6,000 years old. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, I yes. really doubt yeah. it. I really, really doubt it. But in... And that was, of course, an, an, a ridiculous example. Um, yeah. But with ghosts from the past, which is yep. interesting. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But there are it's some. It's like you're that, human. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But there may come a realization collectively in the field that orients us to a completely new way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important. By the time this publishes, we'll also had a conversation published about paradigmal shifts mm -hmm. uh, in psychotherapy and how we really need to pay attention to every element of the conversation that we're having not only the words we're using but how those words were shaped through the thoughts that were committed to in schema mm -hmm. and where those schemas themselves came from yeah why are we committed to the paradigm and the field that we are in the way that we are yes um so in looking at the theory of human evolutionary biology we're looking at how did humans come to be from a more quote-unquote primitive 
simple organization of biological matter. Hmm. That's the the yeah. basic theory. And yeah. we're talking about Darwin, but we're also talking about Jackson. We're talking about so many other theorists that have been adding to this over time that trace our origins back to a more similar than different organization of parts to mm -hmm. other vertebrates, but even before that, into single-celled organisms. Yeah. So with that, you have a lot of ground to cover <laughs> when you're talking about modern evolutionary biology theory, um, because there's a lot of assumptions that don't often get checked. Mm -hmm. But one piece that I wanted to mention is that at some point, accretion-based evolution is essential. Like, is you can't get away from it. We had to go from, in the theory of human evolutionary biology, sorry with all the prefaces, but we had to go from a single-celled organism up until a more common phylogenetic uh, spectrum mm -hmm. where we now look a little bit more like an animate figure on land. Mm -hmm. That takes the development of new material on pre-existing material. Yeah. Accretion is the development of new layers on top of pre-existing layers. Mm -hmm. But there comes a evolutionary turn into specialization mm -hmm. and not accretion. Hmm. So we, we stop developing new matter from nothing on top of existing matter and we go into now we're specializing pre-existing matter. Mm -hmm. That's the, the turn that Porges, I think, is really making a essential commentary on. Hmm. That it's, of course, absurd to say that humans are the first ones with a uh, tripartite ventral system that yeah. has myelinated and unmyelinated parts and that that is syncing up our... Uh, threat response system to our heart rate and things like that, which yeah. is some of the misconceptions attributed to the theory. Yeah, it's absurd to say that because we can identify uh, dorsal uh, myelinated systems in even non-vertebrates early on yes. in biology, but that doesn't have any consequence on what Porges is saying because what he's actually saying is that it's the way humans use mm -hmm. the system, i.e., the specialization that humans have developed in this system that makes it uniquely higher mammalian. Yeah, yeah. So sorry, I just wanted to add no. that little, like when we're talking about human evolutionary biology, we're talking about both accretion and specialization, mm -hmm. which if you get anywhere into the conversation, you need to have that like top yes. of mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I think that's a, a great segue into how polyvagal theory is just in generally conceptualized as you know his words are the autonomic nervous system was repurposed to suppress defensive strategies in order to su support and express soci sociality the product of this transition was an autonomic nervous system with capacities to self-calm to spontaneously engage others socially and to mitigate threat reactions in ourselves and others through social cues mm -hmm. um, so this being like not only like a mammalian sociality, but then also this like self-regulation to produce social cueing that can then keep us like further specializing in yeah. threat mitigation. Let's spin up on that one a little bit um, because I want to talk about why that might be novel hmm. and important to understand. Because what you just said on the face of it, I think, I don't know, at least in me, it's like, well, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but why is that important? Why did Porges say that? Mm -hmm. um, if you, again, if you want to read exactly what Porges said, that's in the book or that's in the article. But how I'm making sense of it and some of the notes that I wrote in preparing for this episode 
That is a different way, what you just read, that is a different way of handling threat in the environment than more primitive mammals. Yeah. Um, that's what I'd like to spin up on. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. So when I say those words, what kind of comes up in you as you're thinking about how humans handle threat versus how more primitive even mammals mm-hmm. uh, handle threat. Well, yeah, I think of like how often um, humans are using such complex processes to inhibit a Actually response. Yeah, yeah, a response to threat that still engages the threat in some way, even like pro-socially. Like mm-hmm. you know, we're in threatening environments all the time, and we don't engage with it. You know, mm-hmm. you hear some something that. <laughs> I've joked about writing a paper on all the time is being downtown where we are and motorcycles go by. And even yesterday, one like popped like a gunshot. And it was like, we, like I turned to look at other people and we just laughed. Like, like that's a different specialization of an inhibitory response that then cues social engagement to mitigate like my reaction. Yes. Where I didn't like bust out the door and go like, running to attack them yeah, or to attack to them or to run, run away. away right which here's an example of um there's construction going outside of going on outside of my house mm. uh, my uh, my in-laws are building a house like literally a, a stone's throw away from our house uh, but that means these large construction vehicles are coming and going we live mm. out in the country our dogs two dogs not used to that at all but when one passes by randy the puppy will bark or like start to like excite their mm. auditory and vocalization system to name that there's a threat in the environment. Yeah. Her hackles on the back come up. I was going to say all of the autonomic nervous system like fluctuations of high activation. Threat detection yep. and seeking mitigation strategy initiates. So then she runs to the door. She continues to listen. And she runs then to this... Uh, window that looks out over the the site and she's standing up there barking Mm -hmm. and polly the other dog will then in response to randy's barking start barking polly does not do this Mm -hmm. it's very strange on her own so randy even though she's a puppy seems to have a role as the threat realizer and Mm -hmm. orienter to polly who is an older dog Mm -hmm. but it's only when i vocalize that it's okay that they actually break their focus on the threat and come back together. And then barking, they're actually stirring each other up more. Mm-hmm. It's only when I say, hey, listen to me, come here, do they actually slow down. Yeah, and you're, like, your nervous system is utilizing exactly what Portis is talking about, a capacity to self-calm, yep. to kind of put the brakes on your own autonomic nervous system activation. To know that that's not actually a threat. Yeah, engage others socially, and mitigate threat reactions in others through social cues. Yes. So just like you were doing with your friends mm-hmm. at laughing at this motorcycle, that's an example to me of very highly evolved mammals that know that it's not actually a threat and it's actually annoying. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a comparison between, as I just painted in that example, of me in the house with my two dogs, lower mammals, you now see a very stark contrast in how we will orient to threat. Mm-hmm. And my my posture is to go get them from the kitchen and to sit with them and talk to them. Yeah, That was not their orientation. 
they were going in different directions trying to kind of triangulate the threat mm -hmm. barking to each other to the object out there trying to locate what the threat was and whether or not it was really an issue yeah yeah i, I love you know sometimes we'll talk about how like we as um higher order mammals human mammals like we have learned that sometimes less activation is actually more mitigating of the threat when we're in connection with others that's it then to be fully activated myself and to face the threat either head on or run from it yeah to do these very like primal um autonomic strategies yes um, yes and that is what i feel and i don't mean this to be an understating of the theory but that is what i feel to be the essential difference in understanding polyvagal theory as a human evolutionary biology approach to understanding autonomic regulation in higher order mammals mm -hmm. um yeah do you have a top of mind the the um i love how poor just says that the title itself of that first talk um named it for what it was oh i have it here so in sort of addressing some of these criticisms, he Porges says that these initial critics perhaps didn't even read the title as a synopsis of the theory, which may in fact be one of the reasons they misunderstood some of the fundamental tenets. So the original title of that, um, the publication on the theory um, is Orienting in a Defensive World, colon, Mammalian Modifications of Our Evolutionary Heritage. A polyvagal theory mm. so that i think right there is we're tracking the at first you know beginning and accretion development of new matter on top of pre-existing into specialization of actual vertebrate you know vertebrates and then mammals mm -hmm. um you start to see where the specialization is really key mm -hmm. yeah 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 they they talk about how that group of researchers taylor and grossman um uh, they misunderstand a theory which uses evolution at, evolution to emphasize the repurposing and modification of the neuroregulation of autonomic nervous systems in mammals to actively support sociality by constraining autonomic states that support defense. Which is just another way of saying, like, evolutionarily, as a species, we have learned, which again is theoretical, we have learned that it is more supportive of us to not always become autonomically reactive mm -hmm. but to sometimes constrain that reaction to engage in social connection to yes mitigate threat and at at some point in our evolution we learned that perhaps that is in fact a more efficient and effective way of mitigating threat mm -hmm. than relying on our primitive yeah responses yeah and just to give like a maybe a clinical application just to do a little touchstone there um, for listeners would be like, you know, why does a client not leave a, a, an abusive, whether that's physically, emotionally, whatever, an abusive situation all the time? Mm -hmm. Well, their nervous system is constraining the autonomic response to just get the hell out of there because that's actually going to increase threat and danger. And their nervous system is doing that really complex survival, pro survival positive constraining an association yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so that they can stay safe as safe as possible yeah for as long as is needed i love this idea of the clinical example because 
even from so if we look at polyvagal theory which i believe to be one of the best exa- like best explanations of that situation that mm-hmm. i've come across mm-hmm. regardless of your theoretical explanation you have to account for that paradox mm. why would a person stay in a relationship that has put them in the hospital multiple times mm. has gotten their kids taken away from them and seems to have no end in sight mm-hmm. how can you explain that yeah that's the threat. Yeah. Like, Why would they not leave? Yeah. Well, something is going on biologically that's been co or that's been reciprocally conditioned in them and their attachment environment to say that this is actually more survival positive than the idea of the unknown. Mm-hmm. If we leave one, that person could hunt us down. What would the punishment be? We have all these anticip- anticipation uh, systems that are showing us the worst possible outcome and mm-hmm. trying to condition us away from choosing that idea. Mm-hmm. But then we also have, and even if I were to get away from them, what would I do then? Mm. Again, the, the, the absence of the threat may actually be worse than the presence. Yeah. Yeah. Which like to go back to your dogs, mm-hmm. your dogs are barking at machines that could crush them in seconds yes like they're not running that complex of equations <laughs> right they're just ready to attack and threat. it's a low orientation sound like it's it's a very rumbly like goo, 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 goo. yes yeah. and like moving things and kind of shrieking at the same time so very low and high end frequencies frequencies which are threat frequencies yeah we attune to in situations that are unfamiliar and when we detect those we tune out these other elements of sound that would otherwise cue us into safety Mm -hmm. but that right there is showing why the dogs couldn't hear that sound outside notice that music is on and dad is typing Mm -hmm. doesn't really pay attention to that immediately Mm -hmm. orients to the threat outside the walls because they have no idea just like you said yeah 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 whereas humans in this process using the myelinated vagal Mm -hmm. circuits Mm -hmm. ventral circuits um, are kind of constraining, reorienting. Yes. So regardless of your theoretical predisposition, you have to account in some way for that paradox, Hmm. that difference. And so that's where polyvagal theory comes along as a theory of ontology for how we know Hmm. this reality or how Mm -hmm. we can know this reality. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Where uh, I'm, I'm feeling... Like we've given a little bit of like a framework for polyvagal theory. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything more there or should we jump to? I, I just want to read what I, I think this can take us into the criticisms okay. directly. So Porges starts this, um, this conversation around the impact of polyvagal theory by saying, um, polyvagal theory was an attempt to provide an integrated theory based on the literatures of several disciplines that would provide the basis for testable hypotheses relating autonomic function to sociality and health in humans and non-human mammals. So to me, that's really important to understand the origin because when you read some of these criticisms, like I have the title of one here, uh, polyvagal theory, science or holy scriptures starting and maybe stopping the investigation. When Mm. you read a title like that, you're dealing with what that critic has made of the integration of pvt into other people's thought Hmm. not the origin of the theory this Mm -hmm. is very important the origin of theory is different than those who carry it afterward 
mm-hmm. critics sometimes are responding to those who have carried it, not to the origin. Yeah, but because it's under theory. the name, it's PVT now. Yeah, yeah. An over-constructed yes. critique. Yes, big tent. Like literally ideology. constructed. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, actually, with, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we, we haven't talked on it. I, I do think this feels very important. Um, the the evolution and dissolution. Oh yeah, dissolution is essential. Um, Thank you. And this is just kind of a, a. By the way, this chapter is like sixty pages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. if we're a little like scattered, it's because we're so trying much to is... synthesize so much information. Yeah, yeah. 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 We, and we also spent like 30, 45 minutes before this, even trying to get which like we typically don't a do. grounding or an anchoring <laughs> yeah. in like where the heck are we going to go in this yeah. whole chapter? Which we typically don't do. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. we've already tried to orient. Yeah, yeah, and I. I'm fully aware that you'll hear my wrestling papers, which maybe that's good. Maybe that's an nice aesthetic. Ac- I've already accepted it cool. as an auditory aesthetic of okay. the podcast. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the- I'm, I'm a paper fan. I'm a paper fan. I like the margins. Yep. They're worth it to me. Yep. Um, but recycle the paper. Um, yeah, so this idea of disillusion is, is what he calls evolution in reverse. Yes. So then um, given all that we've talked about so far of the mam- these higher order mammalian experiences in humans are this um, dampening of autonomic responses, autonomic nervous system responses to threat. Yep. But then sometimes there is this... If the threat is too much. Yeah, if the threat is too much, there's this reversal of those systems that drop down. It's kind of how polyvagal theory practitioners and talk researchers yeah. talk, talk about it. They drop down into a sympathetic state, which is very much oriented towards more primal mobilization means of yeah mm-hmm. mobilizing to mitigate threat. Yeah. So we're that's just like pure fight or flight yep. organization of body firing mental patterns. Like we are organizing as if we were more primal, yeah. uh, more animal like, because the threat feels that serious. Yeah. We have to rely on these more deeply ingrained processes. But then I, I feel like that's such an important mm-hmm. um, like nuance in the theory that can sometimes easily be overlooked. Yeah. That we're not saying that just because we're humans that we're like transcendent of our mammalian <laughs> yeah. like tendencies. Yes, yes. It's that if, if the threat feels like, um, if the threat is tolerable to an extent, our primary systems will look socially mm-hmm. to engage the threat yes we will seek connection and safety and connection to mitigate threat but then if that goes unattuned to or un uh, it's it's missed then we will drop down into these more primal ways of um organizing information to yes. mitigate threat. and that being survival positive very survival positive yes because in the face of a you know let's say that that motorcycle didn't drive by, but was driving towards you. Mm. You heard it as it was, you know, away from you mm-hmm. and you oriented towards it. You noticed that it was actually headed directly for you. You would, I would imagine, orient to the others in the group and then start to mobilize mm-hmm. into like, do we need to like get up? Is there any way for that motorcycle to actually like run into us? Is the rider of the motorcycle the problem? Like what's, mm-hmm. what's going on? Yeah you would engage more quote unquote primitive, again, not bad, but more primitive ways of mobilization to respond to a threat that's increasing in its potential severity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. My brain goes to Alan Shore then. Yeah. Unlike Which the that's, development. That's the jump that I want to like really contextualize as well. Because yeah. I don't think PVT in itself is robust to explain everything. Everything. Yeah. Which it's not supposed to. Yeah. So any criticism that points to its shortcomings is like, yeah, obviously. Good. <laughs> like, you know that there's <laughs> more to the this. That's the first step. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the first step. I love That's that. That's not so, the end. Yeah. So you're um, saying you go to, you go to Alan Shore. Yeah. My brain goes to Alan Shore and his, you know, um, Porges and talking about the social engagement system is really oriented towards uh, the visual cueing of our nervous systems to seek or orient towards safety and connection. And I hear Alan Shore coming alongside of that and saying, well, actually the right brain is seeking visual, auditory, and tactile forms of proto-conversation that are connective so that we feel safe. And then our brain then can engage in further integration Mm -hmm. because the right hemisphere is seen safe, soothed, and secure. Yep. And then we can engage in a more integrated way of mitigating threat, yeah. which is more dynamic, more complex, yeah. and usually more successful. Yeah, I heard four, three, maybe four different authors in even your, yeah. your speech there as well. And I didn't want to break it up. I but, know, yeah. with Daniel Stern talking about the sensory motor affective process units involved in primary intersubjectivity. Mm-hmm. Alan Shore obviously being the one synthesizing a lot of that, but then into Poncep's affect regulation of homeostatic circuits. Mm-hmm. And then even still into into Dan Siegel talking about what really does all of this mean in the contextualization shaping of our brains yeah. in relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And all of that going to this like complex process of like is the human mammalian organism and nervous system feeling safe enough to engage in social connectedness to mitigate threat and therefore increasing the amount our brain is developing, growing and nuancing, which is giving us complexity, which is health, or is a threat so serious that we are going to drop down into these sympathetic states of more primal. And again, I love that you keep saying that's like not bad, but more primal ways of mitigating the threat through like direct fight flight responses yes and even still in that evolutionary dissolution you we have access to an even more primitive uh response Mm -hmm. which is that if our mobilization efforts are deemed uh non uh survival positive or non-essential to like it's not going to work then we have the dorsal, what polyvagal theory calls the dorsal vagal complex to resort to, yeah. wherein shutdown sequences begin. Yeah. And that is, again, survival positive, though paradoxical, uh, I think it immediately of, of a deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. Like in that filled with sympathetic activation of mobilization, but to the degree that it can no longer move, it's paralytic. Yeah. So it actually has lost the ability to mobilize despite it being filled with the activation uh, physiological activation to do so yeah um in that motorcycle uh perhaps one of you may become so filled with fear of what could be this potential uh, you know coming threat that you would freeze and not stand up from where you were sitting just like yeah and maybe you know freeze very rigid and locked and trembling maybe looking occasionally to one of the others to see how can i you mm-hmm. know, sending out cues of like help me <laughs> yeah but i can't move yeah That is where I think a lot of people have done 
great integrative and synthesizing work and we do it in our model of attaching like learned development through relationships to polyvagal so if if this is a specialization based system you have to me you have to you have to talk about experience yes from in utero conception out through wherever we are now epigenetic to wherever we are now yeah 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 Yeah. inherited blueprints to you know realized natured potential yeah and what we would say like an sip is like if those sensory motor affective process units of the the motor cycle have a history in that human organism that is more threatening than other people's histories of motorcycles coming at them yeah. and the sound, then that system will go into dorsal because right. the threat is higher and we learn easy threat. Easy example. One person in that group has an experience perhaps of themselves on a motorcycle, has many kind of ties to family or friends that have like really loved motorcycles and you know talk about them as really kind of special and interesting things. So their orientation towards motorcycles is perhaps one of curiosity and seeking some mm. interest in it. And like, oh yeah, who's riding that? And what are they What are they doing here? This is a weird place for a motorcycle to approach. But then another member in the group may have an experience where, let's say, one of their family members would speak very uh, derogatorily about people who ride motorcycles. Mm-hmm. And you should be afraid of motorcycles. That person might have a physiological response towards even the sound as being more... Uh, anxiety provoking and uh, um, uh, death threat. Oh yeah, fearing. Yes, reaction to the sound of the motorcycle and yeah. its approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he even goes into like, if you want, if you are reading the article, I think there's a there's a beautiful section where he's talking about um, newborns, full term newborns, and how even this process starts so early and it connects beautifully with Shore's work on primary intersubjectivity mm. of if there's if there's a disconnection in the amount of safety that that newborn nervous system feels in relationship to the mom to the other care caretakers in regards to feeding protection sleeping temperature mm-hmm. um, even like hearing prosodic like cooing and vocals yeah, yeah. Um, that the parents report this like feeling of like, well, I love my child, but I don't know if my child loves me. Mm-hmm. And it's that underdeveloped social engagement system that is coming into play. Even like, like full term brand new newborn, newborns mm-hmm. can have this like lack of articulation there, this disillusion mm-hmm. of the social engagement system. Yes. Because of experience. Right, because of experience. Yeah. It, you cannot explain it without experience. So one of the things that I'm sort of thinking of is is kind of concluding the overview of polyvagal and then jumping into some of the misconceptions, yep. critiques. Um, but I want to do that with kind of um, the end of one section. Uh, he gives kind of a, a good summation mm. of kind of two broad what page or are you several on? basic uncontroversial conclusions, page 30. Okay. Uh, for listeners, um, he says polyvagal theory extracts from contemporary neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, and evolutionary biology several basic uncontroversial conclusions. One, mammals have two vagal pathways 
which would be the ventral and the dorsal. Yeah, supra diaphragmatic and super. Yeah, or sub diaphragmatic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Number two is evolution and development provide insight into the changes in brainstem structures that enable mammals to be physiological, physiologically calm and to interact socially. Functionally, mammals have neural attributes that act efficiently via rapidly responding cardio inhibitory fibers capable of calming to promote social communication. Even in the face of threat. Yes. Which is what I wish was like added because that's really what I get from what he's saying mm-hmm. is that unlike more primitive uh, vertebrates and even mammals, humans and some other higher order mammals have the capacity within them to encounter the threat not with just reactive uh, sympathetic activation, but actually pro-social co-regulation. Yeah. And it's important to note that we as humans have a myelinated yes. vagus nerve. So yes. that that ability to inhibit cardio uh, cardiovascular fibers, yes. which is slowing down heart rate, um, slowing down the amount of uh, oxygenated Oxygen blood in- pumped to the brain. Mm-hmm. Like we are slowing down so that we can make more cues and take in more energy and information mm-hmm. from our environment to then respond more appropriately. Um, yeah, the ventrovagal pathways also coordinate and repurpose circuits that evolve to support uh, to support defense in socially relevant processes such as play and intimacy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So those being kind of the two main conclusions, we have two we have two vagal pathways. We're not just dorsal. We're not just a sub. Uh, what is it? Sub diaphragmatic uh, pathway, but we have a sub and a supra. Yeah, above. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. above. And the ventral and dorsal then have a complex relationship. Are we going shut down totally, totally inhibitory, which is where with like fear with fear, which is in infants that would be the uh, bradycardia. Brady, bradycardia. Yeah, where the heart rate has slowed so much that it's no longer uh, pumping oxygenated bloods to the vital organs. Yeah. Yes. Are we going there or are we going to the social engagement system, which is a slowing down even in the face of threat Yes. to seek connection to mitigate threat? Yes, absolutely. Um, in earlier thought, which is what kind of anticipated polyvagal theory, there was the binary view of rest and digest and mm. fight or flight. Mm-hmm. So in the parasympathetic, we traditionally ascribed rest and digest um, parasympathetic was good in mm-hmm. that way. You want to be there more often than you are right. in the fight or flight sympathetic range. And what Porges notes is that that type of conclusion is um, natural, is, is organic to the binary perspective we had on the antagonistic relationship between the two. Right. If we're not in one, we're in the other. And the goal is to be in the sympathetic less than we are in the parasympathetic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what polyvagal theory illuminated is that it's actually much more complicated than that and we're talking about mobilization in the body so it's not that we have these switches that we're oh we're now in sympathetic oh we're now in parasympathetic this is about movement of energy and regulation of neurochemical and neurophysiology yeah so in that we need a more complex view Mm -hmm. which again is where polyvagal theory came from yeah but yeah that three-tiered model yes parasympathetic actually has two branches Mm -hmm. the ventral and dorsal yeah. yeah. Shut down or social engagement. Yep. 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 Which is learned, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, let's get into some of the criticisms. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, we've kind of mentioned that um, kind of the main leaders of this um, were uh, authors by the last names of Taylor and Grossman. There's actually uh, public uh, open access articles on ResearchGate if you want to go read some of their initial uh, response publications. Man, I love... I love some of these free ways to get oh open access. To, Come on to research. Give it to the people. That's right. They want it. It's for the people. It's for the people. <laughs> so, I guess do you want to just walk through the table? Um, the, sure. The, I I will say as we get into this, we're going to go kind of slow. I know this is going to be a little bit of a longer episode, but we it's a special episode. We set aside time to do this. Um, it's going to go kind of slow because some of this language is a bit uh, heavy. Mm. And so I want to make sure we go slow in that way. But I do think that walking through the article could be, mm-hmm. walking through the tables could just be yeah. a good way to do it. Yeah. So the first... Are you um, on 36? Yeah. Table 2.2? Yep. Okay. Table 2.2, page 36. Uh, the first, he kind of lays it out on polyvagal theory states on one side. The left side. Uh, inaccurate attributions of polyvagal theory on the right, which is um, kind of articulations from a series of publications from Grassman and Taylor, Campbell et al. in 2005, and then Montero, um, Montero yeah. in 2018. Um, the first kind of attribution that um, Poor just talks about being inaccurate is that evolutionary focus on the autonomic nervous system is inclusive of all vertebrates. Um, Polyvagal theory would state that evolutionary focus only on the transition from reptiles to mammals when the autonomic nervous system is repurposed to support sociality and through afferent feedback, sociality can support autonomic regulation leading to optimized health, growth, and restoration. Mm -hmm. So he's nuancing in the critique that um, the the autonomic nervous system um, doesn't like the regulation of the cardiovascular functions is not inclusive to all vertebrates Mm -hmm. it is a specialization that um, is utilizing afferent feedback of social contact yeah again it's not the what but it's the why and the how mm, of, of these systems. Of these systems, yeah. yeah. So that despite an autonomic uh, regulatory system being present in earlier vertebrates, that doesn't discount the novelty of how humans use that same system. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, and the afferent feedback, again, their afferent nerves are communicating to the brain. Body up. Uh, yeah, body up where in efferent nerves are are out. Brain body. Brain body, yes. Yep. Um, so what what Porges is saying that polyvagal theory states is that uh, it's through that afferent feedback, again, from the environment to the body to the brain, that sociality can support autonomic regulation. That the reason we turn towards one another in the face of threat is because that over time, evolutionarily, afferent communication of stimuli recognition has communicated that there can actually be safety in an environment of threat yeah that can actually help us survive the threat itself yeah and and the the critique then is that they're saying that porges is emphasizing that this is inclusive of all vertebrates Mm -hmm. that all vertebrates engage through an afferent feedback of sociality 
an autonomic regulation, they constrict their, a, their autonomic nervous system activation, leading to optimized health, growth, and restoration through social con connection, right. which like humans, again, yeah. Porges would say that is not true for all vertebrates. vertebrates. Mm -hmm. And I think number two then gets into the sort of the details of the research mm -hmm. and saying that um, polyvagal states, mammals have a unique myelinated vagal pathway originating only in the ventrovagal nucleus with capacity to downregulate autonomic defensive states to support both sociality and health, growth, and restoration, i.e. homeostasis. Whereas the... the Inaccurate attribution. Yeah, the yeah. inaccurate attribution is that myelinated vagal pathways are uniquely mammalian. Mm -hmm. Therefore, observations of myelinated vagal fibers from dorsal vagal nucleuses in vertebrates other than mammals disproves the polyvagal theory. Yeah, it's a very crafty misattribution. Yeah. Because while some of those words are present <laughs> mm -hmm. in the polyvagal theory, it's the order and the impetus that mm -hmm. is of difference. I remember here in Porges saying mammals have, I love the slowing it down this way, mammals have a uniquely myelinated vagal pathway. The inaccurate attribution is that myelinated vagal pathways are uniquely mammalian. Mm -hmm. So to restate Porges, it would be to say that only mammals have a myelinated vagal pathway. Yeah. And that's where Porges is like, whoa. I've not That's said anything not about said. any other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I've not said anything about any other mammal or even vertebrate. Uh, vertebrate. Yeah. So if you find that in a vertebrate, that's great. Yeah, let's update. <laughs> that actually proves, like, that supports the theory even more yeah. that we are using it in a different way. Yes. Which perhaps might evidence why we are um, as adaptive of creature as we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, and again, the research... Um, of these authors what, that, that are critiquing polyvagal theory, they found evidence of myelinated vagal fibers in the dorsal vagal nucleus in vertebrates other than mammals. Like they, they found that. Which with their understanding of polyvagal theory would technically disprove it. Yeah. Because so then they thought, oh, okay. Got so it. if these vertebrates that are not mammals have this myelinated dorsal vagal network, then okay, we polyvagal theory isn't true. Mm -hmm. It needs it needs to just kind of be scrapped. Mm -hmm. Whereas Porges is saying, no, like I'm not saying that mammals are the only ones with this. I'm saying that mammals have adaptively um, organized this to create a sort of social encounter that mitigates yeah. threat in a specialized this is, way. This is so fun to go through these together. <laughs> I love this so much. You can see though, I, I and again to be generous to these authors and. Um, Ecker did this in the memory reconsolidation. Like, you can see them how important the meaning of words are, and how it, it's so easy to misunderstand maybe what some authors mean. And so, just like you would in any conversation, you talk about it. Yes, we have and, to talk about it. And you it. say, like, I'm not sure about that part. What do you mean? Yeah. Like, that's the story of research that we've been trying to help listeners get in, yeah. get into is because, like, avoiding the absolutism. That mm. a published article is inarguable, definitive or fact, must be true in and of itself to ever stand again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a conversation. It's like somebody sent you a text. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a very well thought out and peer reviewed text. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. then you know I want to very clearly communicate what I mean. But it's to start a conversation. A text message is intended to have a reply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what we would miss if those researchers didn't 
say like, here's some findings that we have. Here's how we found them. Here's how we found them, mm-hmm. um, which Porges even has some kind mm-hmm. of critiques on that. Critiques on what the, like the, the statistical methodology. methodology that they yeah. used. But um, it, it, even besides that, they said like, this is what we found. This is why we think this matters to polyvagal theory. The, the downward spiral was then that they jumped on it more and more finding more definitive like ways of going beyond just like a theory critique and further like sharpening of the theory, but just like a dismantling of the theory. This is where, and then people went clickbaity with it. Yes. This is where Porges in this text talks about perpetuating a straw man argument Mm -hmm. because when you first published the initial criticism, it didn't stop there. Then new work was based off of your first criticism. Mm -hmm. Then new work was based off of the second criticism and on so on and so forth. The old like uh, word game of telephone hmm. comes to mind. Mm-hmm. If you're sitting in a circle, yeah. one person starts and it gets communicated all the way back around to where it said something completely different. That's the perpetuation of a straw man argument. Mm-hmm. That what wasn't even there in the initial comment was then retranslated over and over and over again uh, through 10 different people. And then when it got back to the origin, it was com- almost unrecognizable yeah. to what was originally said. Yeah. If the listeners got nothing from this this episode and the memory reconsolidation episode is that like these are people talking. These are not objective, definitive, like truth and all like yeah. absolutes. Yeah. So like at any point, just being like open to like oh somebody says that might be that might be missing a lot of that might be wrong. Like be open. Yeah. Be open to that. That's Maybe it is. Maybe perspectives it is. being highlighted that may not have been initially. Uh, obvious or uh, kind of natural to include to the researcher. Mm-hmm. So that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That is beautiful. Again, I want to just like eradicate this posture of certainty. Like we don't have to be certain about anything and it's erroneous to, to you know, it's completely absurd to be certain about anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's one thing to be certain of, it's that nothing is certain. Like that rings true because it's like, yeah, I've, I mean, yeah. I've learned something and then learned that it wasn't true like yeah. so many times. <laughs> How far I do we want to extend life. that out? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the third one, you ready for that yes. one? Yes. The third one is, and this one, like readers, please. Stick with us. Yeah. And if you have to like go into like a uh, like intentional dissociation because of the words, like, okay, but please come back. Yeah. Because we'll Stay explain with it. Stay with us. social um, Because this sing. one gets a little wordy. Um, <laughs> So the third one, and this is what polyvagal theory states, respiratory sinus arrhythmia is a term used to define a uniquely mammalian respiratory heart rate interaction involving the rhythmic modulation of heart rate via vagal pathways originating solely in the ventrovagal nucleus, i.e. the nucleus ambiguous. Mm -hmm. The inaccurate attribution is that the term respiratory respiratory sinus arrhythmia is equivalent to any respiratory heart rate interaction observed in vertebrates of other mammals or in vertebrates other than mammals. Thus, observations of respiratory heart rate interactions in vertebrates other than mammals involving vagal influences originating in the dorsal vagal nucleus disprove the theory. So basically that is to me saying that if we can find that other uh, vertebrates that are non-mammal are regulating their uh, heart rate yeah. and respiratory systems via the dorsal vagal complex. That disproves the theory. 
Yeah. What Porges is saying is that actually our relationship between breath and heart rate and threat are attenuated by our ventral complex, meaning our mm -hmm. social connection system. That yeah. is essential. Like that to me is the linchpin of that misunderstanding is that no, it's not that we're the only ones that do that and that there's only one way to do that. Mm -hmm. It's that the way humans and higher order mammals do it is different than other vertebrates who have that same ability. Yes. We regulate heart rate. Essentially, these responses are like homeostatic function to threat mitigation. Mm -hmm. Heart rate, breath, threat detection. If you're looking at those from a human mammalian perspective, you see the ventral complex being involved, wherein social connection is the mitigator. Mm -hmm. Do I have enough social connection to actually regulate, down-regulate these mm -hmm. very strong threat responses in my body, or do I need to dis, you know, dissolve or dissolution into a more primitive way of orienting to the threat? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, which I think is like you know, they were they were finding that there are um, vertebrates other yeah. than mammals yeah. that were able to engage in some respiratory modulation. Via the vagal complex. Yeah, via, yeah, via, via the vagal, vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. So then in their brains, like, oh, okay, polyvagal theory must not be right because... It says only these, mammals. Yeah, yeah, these vertebrates that are not mammals are engaging in a regulation of heart rate. But... That's context dependent, like in yes. relation to their environment, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and what Porges is saying is like it's more complex than that. Yeah, that this is not just a rest and digest or a sympathetically activated fight flight response. That there is a regulation of heart rate that goes into a dorsal shutdown. Mm -hmm. That is different from a regulation of heart rate that is in the ventral, um, ventrally mediated. Yeah, that yeah. is ventrally mediated. That is going into social engagement, a yeah. seeking of connection to mitigate threat. This is why there are vertebrates that are not mammals that are engaging in that. I mean, what would be called like reptilian shutdown sequence, right. where their heart becomes very slow. They they drop into this feigned death experience, mm -hmm. which is a modulation of the heart rate, but it is not the precise ventral articulation and expression of a social connected yes. cue or or seeking behavior to then deal with threat. It's right. just a dropout. Right. This is where from a from an human evolutionary biology perspective, regardless of your paradigmal commitments, you have to be able to explain the paradox between a human that is playing a game and a human that is running from a predator. Mm -hmm. Because from an autonomic standpoint, you're seeing systems activated in both situations. So something is attenuating that relationship. Something in the environment and our biology is changing the way our body responds to the internal activation. Because yeah. like when you and I are playing ping pong, that is a level of detail and activation, but it's playful. Yeah. Because we have eye contact, yep. we know that the intentions are for play and excitement and and novelty and spontaneity. Yeah. But I have a very similar level of detail if something like in my car starts to shudder down the highway. Mm -hmm. Like I'm like really paying attention. My I'm trying to hear, I'm trying to listen, I'm trying to feel out what's going on in my car. And in that, I have a very similar autonomic profile than if I were to take a snapshot of us playing ping pong. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to explain, regardless yeah. of your commitment, polyvagal theory or not, you have yeah. to be able to, to note the difference. Yeah. Why is there a difference in relationship to threat? 
Why is it not just if there's threat, we have these fundamentally basic strategies. We're either shut down or activate it. Yeah, or mobilize. Yeah. yeah. It's no, there's a there's a slowing down mm-hmm. with uh, connection to social social experiences. Yes, um, that we haven't explained up until now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But polyvagal theory gives us that that possibility. And I think looking back at at those um, inaccurate ab- attributions, there is it it is so tricky and so like precise to notice like the differences between a dorsal and a ventral vagal um, complex and to notice like the evolutionary like um, accretion and specialization that Borges is talking about Mm. of this social engagement system in the vagus nerve Mm -hmm. that is directly tied to your brainstem and your brain functioning that is that's a that is just a precise articulation that is evolutionary based um, and if we're just like, as researchers or readers or therapists, just saying like, oh, well, we just see that this biological structure is somewhere else, then we disprove this biological theory right. for humans. It's like, no, but how is the biological structure being used? And what are the experiences of that biological yeah. structure in these different um, living organisms? That's what matters. And that's what Porges is really, really aiming getting at, at not yes. the presence mm-hmm. and therefore like it's the just an objective, objective yeah. fact or not right right um, right and i think that that's where to understand the the response to the criticisms that's really the main kind of point is that these criticisms are coming in waging war on the what of things mm-hmm. of like what you're saying or what i think you're saying is only exclusive to mammals i'm going to show you over and over again that it's not exclusive to mammals and Poor just said, whoa, <laughs> the conversation got really out of hand because I wasn't making any claim on what is not in other, or what is uh, in or in, not in non-mammals. Yeah. I'm talking about the way mammals use this thing. Mm-hmm. So it's the how and the why, not mm-hmm. the what. Mm-hmm. But if you were to wage war on the what, you would be correct. There's mm-hmm. no, no merit to uh, the uniqueness of mammalian physiology. It's the way we use it, the why and the how yeah. we use it. It's very complex expressions and uses of these biological structures. That's right. That's right. Um, there is a lengthy section here that I don't want us to spend time on, on the metric mm. uh, yeah. assessment approach to measuring heart rate arrhythmia uh, or respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Um, that is another major conflict that criticisms have uh, taken with polyvagal theory, I believe that Porges does that very well. I don't think there's a lot for us to spend time on here because we're mainly talking about psychotherapeutic consequences. Yeah. Um, so yeah. if you feel okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I do think it is important to know that, like, that there are like checks and balances even on like the methods of inquiry that mm-hmm. people are using to get to these like ways of studying these biological systems and how these biological systems are influence other systems that create this complex experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and to note that Porges is doing some very detailed work on studying uh, respiratory um, sinus arrhythmia. Sinus arrhythmia. Um, I think of uh, RST. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that it is important to note that the researchers are not just shooting in the dark with their methods that they're they're even having conversations about 
better articulating the how they're even studying, like the the modes of inquiry um, that really, you know, could be awesome to read. And when I was reading that, I learned a ton yeah. <laughs> about like even how to measure, how yeah, we propose the body and yeah. these different statistical ways of encountering the body. Mm-hmm. Um, but for psychotherapeutics, right. maybe not as important. Right, right. Hmm. I'm curious, just even as you're reading, I, this is, this is a, an article and like a topic that I think has so many layers to it because on the one hand, um, we're talking about a, a reworking of a theory or a further articulation of a theory. And, and, but then we're also talking about the research field and how mm-hmm. it's engaging itself. And, and I would just be so curious to hear like different therapists or even different like laypersons who may be listening to the, the podcast and how they are engaging um, this kind of conversation of like the way theory really is produced and the purposes of theory and then also how we're researching it and finding um, more insights and not just not just being this kind of all or nothing back and forth. It mm-hmm. really is like an integrated swing. Mm-hmm. Um so I guess listeners, if you're, if you feel comfortable letting us know how you're encountering this, that would be cool. Mm-hmm. I would really like that. Yes. Um, I want to kind of, as we turn to close the conversation, there's actually some thoughts from an earlier episode um, that I want to bring in. You know, we've been talking about evidence-based therapies and what really should be included in that equation of of deducing what is evidence-based and one of this one of the kind of uh, summaries that i think is really helpful is talking about it from a what's in the research what's in the clinical expertise and what's in the client Mm. Um, because regardless of its regardless of its empirical validity even if we were to just look at it from clinical application there is an overwhelming amount of uh, responses and, and reactions from both clinicians and patients, and patients yeah. that have found it life-changing. Mm-hmm. So regardless of how you want to face it from a human evolutionary biology standpoint of how valid it actually is, mm-hmm. the idea itself has been helpful. Yeah, that's such an important... So this is, a, to me, a differentiation that actually strengthens the utility of the theory, mm. not not you know creates a divided house mm-hmm. um, because I think Porges is handling the <laughs> the biology side very well. I mean he's well suited to do that for us as clinicians and as people who are trying to look across the aisle at an integrated uh, healthcare approach. I think our job is to spot the importance of the distinction that we can stand on the science that does validate and will continue to nuance and hopefully change our understanding of the autonomic Mm -hmm. nervous system and our regulation of affect. But clinically, we have a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to understanding this uh, kind of triarchic hierarchical perspective of the nervous system and how neuroception is involved and how co-regulation essentially is a... um, you know, an essential component to life, mm-hmm. a life-sustaining need. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love the the way in which like this is being 
kind of collected and and I even think of like the ways polyvagal theory has shifted my practice yeah in very important conceptual ways like my attention to states and how mm-hmm. states of activation are influencing just the in stories a we tell. way like yes. not necessarily because you're like there with like kinesthetic conductors and you're measuring state change no, no. but just because you're thinking through oh these states and their shifts apparent in my intuition have meaning yeah Yes, and and just thinking of the wealth of connection that I have received from polyvagal theory, yeah, um, probably goes back to why some of those critiques, like earlier in the episode, like why some of the critiques just sort of felt disappointing, because it wasn't really hitting on the things that felt clinically relevant. Yes, to um, the and and I get like that if if those deep biological like theories principles then then do need to be shifted then that will that will shift my application in the therapeutic process but even those didn't shift no and the things that were important to my clinical process got deeper yeah even got richer and like more finely attuned yeah and um that feels like maybe why it was disappointing but also like well heck yeah polyvagal theory like i just got like goosebumps all over my body and tears coming to my eyes because what we're talking about to me is the answer to the science to practice gap um where you know this theory has been around for 25 27 years Mm -hmm. and even now we're talking about ways of of unchaining it Mm -hmm. from strictly biological validity into socially constructed utility yeah like what meaning we can make of it together as an idea is more meaningful than if the biological components were deemed invalid Mm -hmm. which they haven't been yet and don't look like they're going to be yeah but the purpose that i'm like the importance that i'm illustrating is that the idea is perhaps more meaningful as it currently is than the science on heart rate and you know uh, respiratory sinus arrhythmia like yeah. i am a deep like lover of biology and science so for me to say something like this <laughs> means a lot that you know the utility that i found in talking about polyvagal theory seems to honor and validate the human experience in such a way that creates more intimacy yeah. than we had beforehand yeah therefore i will absolutely use polyvagal theory and i will teach it to everybody i possibly can yeah yeah Yes. I love that you, in the same sentence, tethered biological systems to social constructivist perspectives. Um, Because really, like, that is, you know, in any sort of scientific inquiry into consciousness and to biological systems of experience, um, all, like, we're increasingly more aware that the, the utility and the reasons and the why of what we're experiencing matters as like shaping the how of these biological systems are coming to activate. Yeah. Um, and so there's just this complex interplay. I mean, you talk about any field, any past religious spiritual tradition is talking about things like science and art, spirit and body, like yes, all of this. And it's, you know, the complex emergent process, which is why I love Dan Siegel so much of like, the complex emergent process between the interaction of these, um, not just one or the other dictates everything. Yes. The last idea that I want to explore 
it's just for fun. Okay. So it doesn't have to take. It's long. just for fun. Just for fun. Um, you know, you mentioned just now the distinction made between you know historically art and science, love and war, mm. um, these kind of yin and yangs of life, mm-hmm. but that are so treated differently. What do you think about this uh, from a hemispheric perspective? Mm. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> I might be primed. We are I'm, both primed to I have might this be conversation. So. too much for this um, because <laughs> I am also reading uh, Ian McGill, Chris' newest work yes. called The Matter of Things. And I did just read part of his um, process in his second volume on time. I'm so and, glad. And I think like that is like a fundamental component that like we forget that we are space-time bound. Bound. And so when we're talking about how we take in up our consciousness. Sorry, yeah. that was my last part. Okay. But yeah. in our consciousness, that's what I um just to add, consciousness is absolutely bound by space and time. We mm. can have no emergent thought outside of the time from which it came. Mm-hmm. However, there is many layers of thought deeper than that experience that are, I believe, atemporal. But I'm open yes. to hear what you're yeah. sharing for well, sure. And even in that, like you can't, like even time itself is no, there's no such thing as like the past and the present and the future. Right. There is as you understand it in current experiences. But and, that's you making that distinction. Yeah. And what you're saying is like there is an all temporal and we talk about this in therapy of like, you know, if someone's interacting based on a certain activation pattern in their body to me, that doesn't feel like me. Yeah. Of well, memory. Now we're in the past. We're dreaming in the present. The past just here. came to the now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in relationship to these dynamics, these like either ors, yin and yangs, right hemisphere, left hemisphere, um, I, I love Ian McGilchrist posit of time as a necessary factor for the health of both hemispheres. Mm. That the right has to engage in experience and be tethered to the articulation and um, like symbolic um, integration into an abstract concept for meaning making by the left hemisphere, but that it is not like an either or at all. Mm-hmm. You, that's not possible in the brain. Right. And also that like it should be right to, and you sent this message. He references this again in this new work of yeah, right, right to, to left, left and to right. back to right again. RLR. Yeah. Um, and that sort of that takes space time yes to engage in that process and so when we think of like the way humans want to posit a static eternity into our space time Mm -hmm. by saying it's either right or left it's either love or war it's either science or art Um, my brain goes to someone like stolero who says like that is a desire of us as humans to find safety eternally in an absolutism yeah absolutely we don't we don't like the thought of not being eternally safe so we make these so we make these absolutisms that then shape our context of experience in our world sheltering us from the real yeah sheltering us from the real which like (laughs) we're referencing so many authors here but like um and don't have time to go into all of them but i i do think that in research and we even mentioned this in implicit ways like 
Stephen Porges's like careful articulation took space time. Yeah. And it was necessary that it also took space time for these researchers to posit a critique, even go too far in their critique that then allowed us to grow and develop if we're open to it. Yeah. And that's the way the research is developing into this artful science mm -hmm. and not a, or a scientific art and therapy or like, you know, you have all these ways in which those two either ors come together. You have the col corpus callosums of the world yeah. of our experience that allow us to go right to left and back again mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. to from Adam to idea and back again yeah. from body to spirit and back again. Like yes. we have all of these rhythms and it's a, you can't help but use process language for complexity. It's sort of my yeah. like view. Yeah, and um, I, I think that there's, did you, sorry, once more, did you say process and complexity? Yeah, well, yeah. Pro, there, you can't help but engage in a process orientation yes. to get to health. Like, and that's, I literally have Newton's cradle tattooed on my body because I think that's a great metaphor of yeah. we have to go to one end. And we have to like the second we let go and say like oh that's good like life energy will naturally swing us to the other this opposite pole yeah the the left will pull the right over yes the, and the and right seek. will yes. Yeah. yes yeah and and if we're too much in the left it, the right will pull the left over and say dude get in your experiencing yeah like self. we need to be together on this yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i have a ton of information like yeah and you can think of how science and art have been having that same discussion for a long time artists are saying like we know more about the world yes. and scientists are saying like we know a different articulation of the world yeah and it's like they're coming together and therapy's in my opinion a beautiful yeah. place for that but um i think you have to go temporally you have to go in process orientation yeah when you think in our culture you know the world i think has so many examples of this like even just and perhaps to end on like Love and war, mm. two great examples of binary paradox. Now, how could it be that in the same world where love is possible, so too is war? Well, all is fair in mm. love and war. Mm. So, yeah, we have to trust. Yeah, man, and to bring it back to bring it back to Porges, like <laughs> you think of. I'm just gonna uh, and yeah, I'm just gonna go there, like. Think of sexuality, mm -hmm. like the engagement of sex yes. as like a very playful and a, a very playful biological and psychological process. Yes. That does have an element of warring. Yes. Of pleasure seeking prioritization that is both given and received. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. let go of and taken. taken. Yes. Like there is that is there is war yeah but it's a playful and this is where like poor just comes in like this is mobilization without fear mm -hmm. in the sexual act yes that allows it to be playful yes and therefore further integrating and to yes and to rest in immobilization without fear yeah it, it is this this melding together mm -hmm. of the human spirit that you know i think it's terrifying in some ways mm -hmm. to think about that level of intimacy and we dissociate from it so often making it just an act or yeah. uh, something that's meaningless and meant yes. nothing yeah. but at the basis i mean it is one of the most intimate and there's like <laughs> uh vulnerable yeah vulnerable like to die yeah yeah 
spaces. Yeah. That we in that way, I think Freud is a genius by using Absolutely. sex as like the, the totem, totem. Yeah, yeah, the totem for studying what is improper to humans. Yeah. Um, because when he's talking about sex, he's not always talking about sex. Yep. Oh, interesting little fact there. Yeah. <laughs> I do love that listeners get kind of a chance to hear us and our articulation and then hopefully be inspired in their own flavor Go of this on. to like literally take something that is so pragmatic and beautifully so. Yeah. And to launch off of that into like the depths of the human experience <laughs> and to just play around out yeah, there. I'm like, convinced that it's possible with anything. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. like any research that you can find, it's, yeah. it's there. Yeah. It's part of the human story. So. I was going to say, yeah. are humans involved? It is yeah. possible. Yeah. 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 Any men? I would say. That's right. Well, humans were always involved before experiencing, but. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And he doesn't need the gift receipt. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll call it right there. It doesn't matter. But. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much, I love the encouragement of feeling grounded in polyvagal theory, feeling that that articulation has been even sharpened by these um, like over critiquing mm -hmm. um, articles that were published and, you know, all of the kind of clickbaity stuff that came about. I'm, I feel so grounded in, in knowing that I feel more solidified mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. Um, and in that way, it's still open, yeah. but grounded all the more. And I would encourage you to go read some of these um, blog posts because they, they do make you think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the one that I referenced here is it uh, Science or Holy Scripture. Um, that one was very negative towards polyvagal theory and those who have used polyvagal theory. Um, and so as you read through that, see how you feel. Mm -hmm. um, note also that, ironically, you're enacting your bagel complex as you're reading the article which i think is funny like yeah. <laughs> as they're touting like how ridiculous it is that we yeah, have yeah. this they're in themselves activating from it and we're interacting yeah, it's, with it's it. almost like it they slow down their threat response of polyvagal theory oh, that's so weird to seek some sort of connection with others to mitigate the threat by doing some research studies. you would need some type of co-regulatory mechanism Hmm. to down regulate your affect in order to do that so yeah that's interesting i wonder where that comes from i wonder which they ascribe to hmm. must not be real though probably not fake news fake news <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is a fun special episode oh, we don't great. get to do these very often i know so. really special episode so thank you all for listening and we hope it was helpful again please reach out to us um anytime uh, through social media or through even just the comment on the podcast mm. um, that's always really exciting so we love to hear from you and we hope that you read along with us we hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers if you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media.
a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice That is an EMDR podcast hosted by Emdria-approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear.